Michael, last time we spoke to you was in March of last year, at the very height of the first wave of the COVID-19 crisis. The S&P 500 stock index had fallen by 7% in one day. Trading was suspended on Wall Street. Millions were being thrown out of work every week. Uh, Entire countries were shutting down vast sectors of their economies. In short, it was a picture of global economic freefall. In terms of the big picture, economically speaking, where are we nearly a year on? Well, in terms of uh, outputs, employment, investment, we've had probably the most disastrous slump in economic activity uh, that we've seen in most in everybody's lifetimes. In fact, on average, most uh, economies in the world have collapsed by international output terms by anything between eight to 10%, or at least a minimum of 5% fall. Uh, That's the biggest slump in 100 years on average for all these economies. In the case of the UK, you've been interested to know that the slump of 10% in GDP this year is the biggest fall in national output in 300 years. So it's an indication of how severe this uh, slump has been. And not only that, how widely spread it's been. The IMF estimates that just around about 95% of the 189 countries in the world have entered recession uh, during 2020, uh, the year of the COVID. So in terms of the real economy, it's been a disaster for output, employment and incomes, particularly in the poorest uh, countries of the world, the uh, so-called global south, but also uh, in the major economies of Europe, United States and Asia. On the other hand, the financial markets, which we pointed out had collapsed early on with the news of COVID, miraculously recovered to reach new highs in stock market indexes. And that, of course, is the result of a huge amount of credit injections uh, by central banks and financial institutions around the world to support the stock market and the companies in them. And as a result, a huge speculative boom in stocks and bonds has taken place in a year when everybody else has been taking a hit to their incomes, employment and investment prospects. Obviously, the contingent circumstances are vastly different, at least in some respects. But how uh, does this economic crisis compare to the Great Recession of 2008-9? Yeah, well, it's larger. Uh, The Great Recession of 2008-9, on average, probably caused about a 3 to 4% fall in national output, larger fall in investment, around 10%, and employment as well. And it took around 18 months, that period of a slump, before we saw any recovery. And that we called the Great Recession because it was the largest slump we'd seen in the major economies of the world uh, since the 1930s. But this slump, the COVID slump, the pandemic slump, is double that on average for most economies in the world. As I say, between 5 or 10% of GDP has uh, collapsed during uh, 2020. Some countries more, some countries less, but on average that's been the case. And also this time, nearly every economy in the world, large or small, has uh, gone into recession 
for the period of 2020. Now, at the time COVID began sweeping across the world, there was a sense in which it was arguably the match that was thrown into a tinderbox that was already set to go up in flames. In other words, the global economic conjuncture in late 2019 and early 2020 was such that a worldwide recession seemed highly likely with or without the COVID factor. Is this an assessment you would agree with? And if so, what implications does that have for a post-pandemic economic recovery if the underlying economic conditions are so fragile? I think that was the case. As we got towards the end of 2019, it became clear that the major economies in the world were slowing down fast. Uh, Growth of industrial output, investment and uh, incomes had crawled almost to a halt in the major economies. Growth was of our national output was no more than 2% in the best economies, down as low as 1% in Europe. In the case of Japan, they were already in a, in a recession. There was a negative uh, contraction of uh, national output. And some major, what we call emerging economies like Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, Mexico, were into a recession already. So the situation was moving towards the traditional classical uh, recession that we get in capitalist economies every eight to 10 years on a recurring and regular basis, the previous one, as we know, 2008-9, then 2001, and so on. But then we had the pandemic to cut across it. And as you say, that had just accelerated what was already happening in the world economy to the level of the slump that I've been talking about. Now, the question is, uh, what will happen afterwards And I think the weakness of capitalist investment, the profitability for capitalists on average, uh, the ability to expand productivity is so poor that we can expect, as we recover from the pandemic during this year, with vaccinations and reduction in the infections and so on, that growth rates after the initial bounce back are going to be very weak indeed. Most uh, international agencies accept that, the IMF, The OECD, the World Bank, are saying that basically the growth rates that we're going to see, say, from 2023 onwards, are going to be lower than the growth rates we had in 2019. And the loss of output between 2019 and 2020-22, which is now estimated at between 10 and 15 percent of the projected trend growth, will never be recovered. So we're going to have, in my view, what I call another leg in this long depression of crawling growth, poor growth, poor productivity, poor investment growth that we had between 2008 and 2019. And that's going to continue once the COVID pandemic is uh, over and we return to so-called normal economic uh, activity. There was, of course, great variation in the pre-existing economic circumstances of individual nations when COVID-19 first emerged, with some countries faring better than others in their capacity to both absorb the initial shock of lockdown and then begin the process of economic recovery. Many commentators have argued China has, perhaps unsurprisingly, fared the best of all nations, whereas many Western economies, by contrast, remain in a woeful state, particularly in Europe. In the fullness of time, will we see this bizarre period of COVID as a critical turning point in the ascension of China as the preeminent world power? Well, I think there are two reasons for for China's ability to get out of the COVID pandemic slump better and quicker than other countries. By the end of 2020, China will have actually expanded compared to 2019, only by about 2% compared to its average usual growth rate of 6%, but hardly any other economy in the world 
we'll be able to claim that it's actually had growth in 2020, which uh, China will do. And there are two reasons for that. The first reason is, in, in my view, is that those countries, those economies that have, and governments that applied sufficient measures to suppress the uh, COVID infections, either through test and trace, through having an efficient health system, and or uh, adequate and firm lockdowns and socialization measures, they would be able to get out of the slump quicker than those countries who did not do that, didn't have the health systems to back it up, didn't do the test and trace, didn't apply lockdowns and socialization firmly and quickly, uh, and allow things to be relaxed on and off. The result is that those countries have suffered worse, as in Europe, as in the United States. The big point here, Alex, is that there was no trade-off between lives and livelihoods. The argument was, if you don't let the economy, if you put too much uh, restrictions on and lockdowns, you'll cause a crash in the economy that you won't recover from, and livelihoods will be lost. Well, the evidence of 2020 shows that's not the case. Those countries that have suppressed the COVID with sufficient and even drastic measures were able to come out of the crisis quicker and therefore had better uh, a less impact from COVID than even in the case of China growth. And the other factor is that it's, which what has been shown is that the market economy is totally inadequate in dealing with these crises, that uh, relying upon private health, uh, cutbacks over the last 20 or 30 years of health systems and other public services uh, through the market and relying on the market has meant they've not been able to cope with this pandemic. On the question of a variation of economic circumstances, if there wasn't just variation between nations, but also within nations. A lot of research has suggested, for instance, white-collar professionals didn't really suffer a great deal during the worst of the lockdowns. Not only did they have a greater economic cushion in terms of savings and so forth, but they're also easily able to transition to working from home at remote computer workstations. Retail, service, construction, hospitality and industrial workers of various kinds, on the other hand, were hit hard and indeed in many instances their jobs were destroyed permanently. To what extent have these class divides been accentuated by the COVID crisis? Well, I think you're right. You've summed up that this, uh, the impact has not been... Uh, they used to say that the virus doesn't discriminate. Well, the virus did discriminate. Those people who had to go to work, frontline workers... Uh, emergency workers, people who uh, basically don't can't work from home in order to car- to get their living, those people had to risk the COVID, had to t- continue to work, and were able to take advantage of uh, working from home, protecting themselves, and uh, also they tended to be workers on lower incomes, therefore they had, didn't have the same savings uh, uh, buffer that they could rely upon. Uh, they were they were Therefore, actually, probably in many cases have problems with increased debt rather than increased savings. So there's been an unequal impact upon the lower income workers, the workers that have to do much of the basic work to keep an economy going, and those in the professional occupations, white-collar jobs who could work outside of the office and from home. And the other point, Alex, is that just remember the Global South. In the Global South, Millions, hundreds of millions of workers are informal workers. They're employed on a cash basis. They don't have contracts and permanent jobs. They were forced to go to work during a, a rife uh, expansion of the, of the infections 
without health systems to support them. And so it was a huge increase in infections and the loss of employment uh, and even the movement of people having to travel hundreds of miles to get away from the infection, as in the case of India. This was a disaster for the poorest sections of the world and the poorest, uh, the weakest sections of our modern economies as well. So it certainly was not an unequal an equal impact, mm. quite the opposite. Absolutely. Finally, Michael Roberts, much of the conspiracy theorising around COVID has focused on the figure of Bill Gates, that somehow he orchestrated the virus and now also the global vaccination program in order to increase his wealth and power. Ex post facto, one might see some merit in this argument, as it's clearly the case that Silicon Valley, the big tech billionaires, not just Gates, but Zuckerberg, Bezos et al., have indeed dramatically increased the size of their wealth. Does this mean there is a structural shift in the economy with the IT sector becoming even more important than it was before, or is it simply an acceleration of pre-existing trends? Well, I think it's probably an acceleration of pre-existing trends. There's no doubt that the most uh, powerful growth, both in profits, incomes and uh, wealth, has gone to those sectors of the economy that is what we call the high-tech or the media uh, surrounded by what was called the fangs, the basic huge social media companies that have sprung up over the last uh, 15 to 20 years, and particularly since the Great Recession. They have been sucking up a great proportion of, of profits and gains, and we've seen huge daily gains in profits for the owners of these companies. I'm not sure they deliberately went to get the virus to achieve that, but the result of the huge expansion of the stock market index has meant that their wealth has just multiplied dramatically. Of course, if the stock market was to crash over the next couple of years, then much of that wealth could disappear into smoke. But nevertheless, it's the case that the the tech sector, particularly these very big companies, are increasing the dominant part of it. If you strip out uh, those companies from the stock market index, the rest of companies have hardly seen any improvement in their share prices or profits. It's all concentrated in this area. So he has accelerated this concentration and centralization of wealth and capital uh, amongst the tech and media companies. And that is why, to, to comment on your earlier question, we're going to see an increased rivalry between China and the U.S. over the markets in the tech sector. That's going to be crucial to who controls the world, if you like, in production and employment and incomes and the share of world markets over the next 10 to 15 years. China is now becoming a rival to the U.S. and to the U.S. tech companies, and that is why the political conflict in this area is going to intensify over the next decade or so.